Matthew 14, verse 42. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away, and after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stages away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O ye of little faith, why did ye doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Well, we've seen thus far Jesus has <clears throat> was attempting to pray alone when they crossed over to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and only to find the multitudes uh, following him on foot. And there we're told that Jesus felt compassion upon them, healed them of their diseases, fed them because it was at an hour where they were in need of food, and he feeds the 5,000, this great miracle of the multiplication of the, uh, of the loaves and the fish. Again, Jesus is attempting to go and, and pray. And after the feeding of the 5,000, he, he goes, <clears throat> tells the disciples to go ahead and get in the boat, sail across the sea. They're going to return to Capernaum, and he will meet up with them. Uh, probably by foot, and um, he has gone up to the mountain to pray. And we see that it doesn't take long uh, before the disciples in their boat are finding themselves in distress on the Sea of Galilee. I think before uh, we have looked at a passage when Jesus was uh, <clears throat> traveling with his disciples in a great storm, arose on the Sea of Galilee. The nature of the Sea of Galilee is, and the geographical structure around the sea, is of such nature that these great storms can come up suddenly upon the sea. You can, it can be fine one minute, uh, and then 10, 15 minutes later, uh, you can have a gust of wind like 50, 60 miles an hour upon the Sea of Galilee. It can happen that quickly. Jesus is, is praying and But he notices that his disciples are in trouble. Now, it's one thing we need to understand here. It says in verse 23, He sent the multitude away, went up to the mountain by himself to pray, and he was there alone. 
but the boat was already many, many steady away, and he sees what is happening with the disciples. It's no minor thing that the scripture always refers to the fact that the Son of God would regularly want to go and spend time in prayer to his Father. You think about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the God-Man. He is divine, yet he's human. And yet Jesus sees the necessity of the value of prayer. And we ought to just not just simply pass that by. If, if prayer was of such vital importance to the Son of God, why isn't it of vital importance to us? It needs to be. Jesus sought to commune with the Father. In prayer, that's what we do, commune with our God. And the amazing thing here is that Jesus is engaging in prayer. Now, why is he engaging in prayer? Uh, Well, one, it establishes, as I've said, communion with the Father. Secondly, Jesus is communing with the Father for the purpose of interceding on behalf of of his people, his church. And three, we understand that prayer is a foreordained means to a foreordained end. It is a means to an end. So, Jesus is praying. He's uh, praying to his Father. He sees his disciples in distress on the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to come to them. Uh, it is interesting at this point, keep in mind that when he, he fed the 5,000, if we noticed last week we mentioned that upon feeding the 5,000, the people understood uh, the, some of the nature of the miracle to the extent that they were going to seize him by force and initially basically kidnap Jesus, take him to Jerusalem and set him up as king. They saw that as a means of here the miracle worker who could do anything that he wanted, healing people, uh, changing, I mean multiplying uh, food. If he can do that, he can defeat their enemies, the Romans. But Jesus would not have any part of it. We know his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. That has, being a spiritual kingdom, it does have impact upon us. But Jesus is always seeking uh, to do those things foremost to demonstrate he is the Messiah. Remember, Matthew's whole gospel account is for the purpose to convince the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's his purpose. Now, as you read these gospel accounts, it's interesting in these what the major emphasis is. Like, for example, John's gospel account is to demonstrate the divinity of Jesus, that he's the Son of God. It's interesting in this account, all the gospel writers... They will have, they, they mention, uh, several of them mention this story, but it's interesting 
part of the crucial thing about this story, about Jesus coming to the disciples on the sea, John, for example, doesn't mention anything about Peter coming out onto the water. You think, well, that seems to be a major part of this whole incident. But John doesn't even mention it. They have their purpose uh, to convey certain truths. Again, we're going to see in John's account here, the whole thing was to demonstrate Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. But Jesus is praying. And the purpose of Jesus praying, and he sees his disciples, he sends them ahead. And we, we need to understand that value of Jesus' prayer and his concern for his church. For example, right before he is delivered up um, to the Jews, if you turn over John 17, take a look at John 17. Look at verse 9. Now Jesus has gone off to pray from his disciples, which is known as the um, high priestly prayer of Christ. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now when Jesus, he, he has a concern for his church. He's praying. How did Jesus know? that they were in distress. Well, one thing the accounts of uh, the gospel writers indicate that they were already three to four miles out upon, upon the sea of Galilee. Well, Jesus is divine. <laughs> you say, well, he was on the mountain. He got a good view of what was going on. But Jesus knows everything that's going on. And they are struggling. They are struggling in their journey. And Jesus will come to them. He'll come to them. Uh, we don't know how long he waited, but he did wait. One of the gospel writers indicates, Mark says, that he came to them in the fourth watch. Meaning, the fourth watch is that time period between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. You don't know when they left. <laughs> But Jesus gave them enough time that they were uh, struggling. But here's a good thing. Jesus will come to them. He understands their distress, and he will come, and he will deliver them out of it. We ought not to bypass the implications of that for us. The fact is, you know, many times the Lord allows things to take place in our lives and sometimes we wonder, where is the Lord? Where is He? Why is He waiting? Why is He delaying? Well, God is not ignorant of what the situation is. He's not ignorant of our troubles. He has providentially allowed us to be in certain situations, certain circumstances, and allows us... Uh, to experience difficulty for a reason. And we're going to see here, for a reason, primarily to teach us faith, that He is faithful, 
and to, and to demonstrate to, to us that he truly is the Son of God. Because that's what this story is all about. The fact that he is confirming the fact by his miraculous walking on water, calming the storm. By the way, there's an indication when he comes in here, uh, several writers don't mention when Jesus does get into the boat with them, one of the writers indicates they immediately found themselves on the other side. So you know what he did? He teleported them. <laughs> he teleported them instantly when he got in the boat. One of the writers, they don't mention that. But another does, it says when he, when he got in the boat, they were already there. So, you've got all these amazing acts of Jesus here. First of all, walking on water. That's one miracle. Uh, calming the storm, a second miracle. And third, instantly causing them to arrive at their destination. Another miracle. Why does the Lord wait when he allows us to get into situations? Well, to teach us faith. To, uh, and sometimes he waits long enough so that we begin to think all hope is lost in ourselves. <laughs> We're doomed unless he intervenes. And at the right moment, that's when he comes. And he intervenes and saves us. Uh, you know, in, in this whole thing, we're told here, now imagine disciples, they're, they're in this boat, they're struggling because of the, uh, the, the wind that is uh, preventing them getting where they need to go, and they see at about 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning, they see this figure walking on the water. Now just put yourself in there position. They were terrified. This is the ghost. What? Now, has Jesus ever walked on the water before? No, he hasn't walked on the water. Now, he's demonstrated who he is in amazing ways uh, before, but they haven't seen him walk on water. They just see this figure coming, and they think it's a ghost, and they, they are terrified. And Jesus comes to them and says... Verse 27, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, if there is any passage that I want for you never to forget the implications of, this is one passage. This passage alone will be of immense help to you in your walk with Christ. Just these small words. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. There's a world of theology in that short phrase. Now the opposite of courage in the scripture is fear. They're already afraid, so he tells them, don't be afraid. Take, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. The implications is this. 
As long as you have Jesus with you, why should we be afraid of anything? You know, the psalmist said, uh, The Lord is my light and my salvation. I will not be afraid. As long as you have Jesus, all is well. You know, Mark records the account. We looked at this account before. Uh, <clears throat> when Jesus was with his disciples in a boat, and a great storm arose, and he sound asleep, and the waves are filling the boat, and they're convinced, and all the evidence is they're sinking. And they rush back to the end of the boat, waking him up. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus wakes up, calms the storm immediately, showing his divinity, right? But then he rebukes them. Now, a lot of people looking at that would think, hey, is Jesus being too hard on these? I mean, actually, the boat was sinking. So he's kind of tough, isn't he, on these disciples? But really, what's he trying to convey to us? You can have the boat filling up, but you had me. If you had me, why are you afraid? Oh, ye a little faith, why did you doubt? Why were you afraid? You had me. And so when... These, when Jesus comes to the disciples in this instance, walking on the water, he says, you have me take courage. Now, you know, in this regard, um, one of the things that, um, a little phrase that I had mentioned to you before, that you ought not to forget is, where there is faith, there is no fear. The disciples should have known better. Where there is faith, there is no fear. You see, what faith does, faith dispels all fear. One of the things here, the disciples could have learned from some of the other instances of Jesus. Remember we talked about uh, Jairus, the uh, synagogue official? He expressed faith more than disciples. Uh, remember the, lady, the, the woman with the hemorrhage who kept saying, if only, if only I could touch the fringe of his cloak, I will be healed. She had faith. Their faith exceeded that of the disciples. And, uh, and Jesus kept saying, and remember what he said to uh, the woman with the hemorrhage, she says, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. See, that's just another phrase. Take courage. I am with you. Don't be afraid. You know, this whole idea, sometimes people say, uh, <clears throat> especially you get this notion, and, and I understand what they're saying, Especially men in war when they are in a battle and they could die at any moment and they have to uh, express some deed of courage to, to, to build up courage to act despite the fact they may die at any moment. And so they talk about courage in the light of having this intense fear. 
Well, you know, the value in that, all that, is one thing. But, brethren, that is not how the Bible pictures faith. Faith is the absence of fear. If you turn, uh, I know we looked at this before, but if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31, and take a look at verses 5 through 8. Now Moses is, is leading Israel to the promised land with the expectation they're going to go into the promised land. And we see here in verse 5 it says, And the Lord will deliver them up before you, and ye shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Here's the admonition. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. Why are we not to be afraid? I am with you. I have given you a promise. Therefore, you have no reason to be afraid. If you just look over, just turn right over to Joshua 1, and you see after Moses died, of course, Joshua is the leader of Israel. And God is giving a charge to Joshua, affirming his uh, the fact to Joshua that he will be with him as he was with Moses. But look at uh, Joshua 1.9. He says, God says to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So this whole idea is this. Courage is action without fear, without anxiety. It's not acting despite fear, it's acting without the fear. And so when Jesus is with his disciples, they should never fear about anything. Shouldn't fear about what they're going to eat. They shouldn't fear about a great storm. They shouldn't fear about anything. That's the point. Again, what do we become fearful of? Jesus anticipated it. What are the things that we become fearful of? Well, we're going to have to have enough money to get through the month. Something happens to vehicles or, or something. How's the Lord going to provide that? Uh, circumstances that he brings in. Uh, how's, how's the Lord going to see us through this one? 
He brings these things into our lives for a distinct purpose. To teach us faith. And here's what we got to understand. In this faith, this is a faith in the promises of God. Where are you going to see a fear? We're going to take a look at some of the great failures in the Bible of faith and, and as in distinction with fear. It's because they didn't trust in a promise. Now, in this, in this incident of Jesus walking on the water, Matthew records Peter. And we're, we're not told why Peter wanted to do this. Some say, well, Peter was kind of an audacious kind of guy. He sees Jesus walking on the water and says, Hey, Jesus, I want to come out on the water. Why do you want to walk on the water? Maybe... <laughs> We're never told why he wanted to walk on the water. You can, you can speculate as to it. But when Peter said, I want to come, Jesus says, well, come. And Peter was actually walking on the water. And you've probably heard this before. He was doing well until, look what the text says. <coughs> Verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. So here we see what Peter is, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is enabling him to do a miracle. But when does he sink? It says when he, he he began to sink because he looked out at the circumstance where he was and began to wonder, what am I doing? And he sank, Jesus says, because of what? Why, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Despite the fact that he saw the waves and the wind and he was doing this, he may begin to think, I I shouldn't be doing this. Nobody walks on water. And he sinks. He lost faith. Now the thing about it is, who was empowering Peter to do this? Was Was it the greatness of Peter's faith? No. The only reason Peter could do this was because of the power of the Lord God, the power of Jesus. And as long as he had faith in the power of Jesus, he was fine. But when he began to look at the circumstances and he took his eyes off of the one who was empowering him, that's when he began to see. And so Jesus rightly said to them, O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? You know, doubt is always the companion to fear. Always the companion to fear. Uh, 
what doubt does, it begins, it, it leads us uh, away from the promises of God. That's what doubt is. We begin to question whether God is who he is and whether he's actually going to do what he's promised to do for us. That's doubt. We begin to question the Lord's faithfulness. And we, when we doubt, it's because we focus upon the circumstances and we question God's care, we question his provision for us. You know, brethren, one thing is sure in the Christian life. <clears throat> I can guarantee you this. God is going to test you at some point in your Christian life to determine, are you trusting in my promises or not? He will test you. Every one of us will be tested. And you may say, well, I'm glad I got that test over. Well, it's not, <laughs> it's not that easy. It's like you learn it once and it's over. No. Throughout our lives, he's probably going to bring multiple tests to us. And sometimes we have to learn it all over again. What is, what is the Lord wanting to teach us? You must always depend upon me, he says. You're always dependent upon me. Don't ever get to a situation where you think you don't need me. You don't need my help. You don't need my power. Don't ever get to that state. And if, you, if, I, if the Lord perceives that we're becoming self-sufficient, he has his way of dealing with it. He says, well, I'll, I'll teach them this. I'll let them experience a great difficulty, and then they'll begin to realize they're not going to be able to get themselves out of it by their own power, so they have to cry out for help. <clears throat> you know, in, in this regard... There, have, there are examples of the failures of faith in the Scriptures. Now keep in mind, in 1 Corinthians, we have that, in 1 Corinthians 10, we have recorded that it says all of Israel was baptized in the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt. But it says that many fell in the wilderness and they did not make it into the Promised Land. Uh, because they had a heart of unbelief. And it says, why were those things written? And the scripture says, they were written for our benefit, for us to learn. For us to learn. Why is this in the scripture, what we're reading today? Our benefit. We need to learn from this. Now, what are some of the great failures of faith in the scriptures? Well... Turn with me. Now, we're going to deal with some of the great patriarchs of the Scripture. Let's start with Abraham for a moment. Turn with me to Genesis 12. Now, let's, let's note what God has promised. Let's start with verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's part of the great 
promise to Abraham. Now, he doesn't have a seed yet. That's coming in Genesis 15. I want you to note the magnitude of the promise. It's incredible. I'm going to bless you to the extent that through your seed, your generations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, we know ultimately we have the benefit of having the past to look at. We know that Jesus Christ, according to Galatians, is said to be the seed of Abraham, to whom all the promises belong. And then we're said to be the seed of Abraham by faith in Jesus. But there had to be this promised seed. There had to be an heir. There wasn't an heir yet. But he had this great promise. But look at verse 10 of Genesis 12. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came, Abram came to Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, gave him sheep and oxen, donkeys, and male female servants, female donkeys, camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, there is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now you think about this for a moment. That's about it. About a greater promise you will ever receive from the living God, what God told him. There's the promise. Did Abraham, was he thinking of the promise of the guarantee of God when he went down to Egypt? No. All he thought was, they're they're going to take Sarah, my wife, and they're going to kill me. Now, he never apparently stopped to think, now, if I die, how is my seed going to be uh, that which will be the blessing to the families of the earth? It never apparently seemed to make a connect with Abraham at that point. And so what does he do? He puts his wife in jeopardy, and he acts... What was, what was his action indicative of? Fear, right? Fear. Not faith. Fear. Fear dominated him. Fear told him to tell, I have Sarah tell him, you know, <clears throat> um, what you did. So, but then you see, um, turn over to Genesis 20. Now, you would think 
you would learn a lesson, don't you think? Somebody like Abraham? I mean, he's said to be the father of faith in scriptures. You'd think he'd learn a lesson. I mean, we're talking about, but look what happens. Genesis 20, beginning verse 1. <clears throat> now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, and there settled with Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. <clears throat> and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. <laughs> Because of the woman whom you're taking, for she is married. For Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I have kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. And Abimelech arose in the morning, called all his servants, told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abram and said to Abraham, what have you done to us, and, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me, on my kingdom, a great sin? You have done to me things that you ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encouraged, encountered, that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He didn't learn from the previous one, did he? does the same thing, does the same trick. Now, the reality is, they're playing games with God. She is a half-sister. He could always say, you know, I really didn't lie. She is my half-sister. Now, this is, I'll just, I'm not going to get off on on the side. A segue here. This is before the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic Law, you can't marry that close. It was forbidden. It was called incest. But it's not. it was before the Mosaic Law. I'm going to leave it at that. Later on, if we want to pursue that, we can. But the point here is, <clears throat> even though it was technically his sister, Sarah was his wife. And he had, they were being deceitful, Pharaoh, they were being deceitful of Bimelech. And they're called, as it were, on the carpet because of this deceit. But what is dominating Abraham? Fear. Right? Fear. Not faith. He should have known, should he not have remembered the great promise God gave to him? He should have. He should have. But he didn't. And so when there is, uh, when we act out of fear, we are acting out 
in doubting the promises of God, His providence, His, His, His protection for us, the promises of God, that's what we're calling into question. And that's what we need to repent of. Well, you might think, surely the Son will learn from the Father's errant ways, right? No. <laughs> Turn over to Genesis 26. I, I, I just get amazed when I read these stories. Genesis 26. You could say, in a negative sense, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in a negative sense, like the father, like the son. Maybe Isaac, he's going to pull the same shenanigans that his father did. Take a look at Genesis 26, 30, uh, verse 3 and 4. Let's, let's deal with the promise here again. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. Uh, for to you and to your seed I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and will give your, your seed all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He receives the same promise, the same covenant promises as Father Abraham. He is the promised seed, by the way. He is the, the miraculous one born to Sarah and Abraham in their old age. And the very same covenant promise is given to Isaac as was given to his father. And God reiterates that to him. But, look at verses 6 through 10. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She's my sister. Here we go again. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill him on account of Rebekah, for she was beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time that, yes, who's the, the victim again of Bimelech? You might be thinking, oh, no. Oh, what is it? What, you know, Lord, what about this family? They keep getting me into trouble. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she's your wife. How then shall you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have taken your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac didn't learn, did he? Same sin as his father. And what, what's, at the, what's at the root of it? Fear. Fear dominated Abraham. Fear dominated Isaac. Despite the great promises of God, that's what I want you to understand. They had this magnificent promise, and yet it didn't make any difference in how they lived their life. And it was a, a shame to them. We'll turn over to Numbers 13. We've, we've mentioned this passage many times before. We won't delve into it all. Two deaths. You know the story when Israel was posed to go into the, the land of Canaan. <clears throat> they sent out the spies. Let's just look at what Numbers 13, verses 25 to 33 says. 
When they returned from spying out the land, at the end of forty days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, We went into the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey. This is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. Moreover, we saw the seed of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites, the Amorites, are living in the hill country. The Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let me stop right there. Caleb has a different perspective. And what is Caleb trying to do? Look what he says. And someone needs to... Who's the namesake here? Let me remember this. <clears throat> then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. Now, Caleb and Joshua, did they see anything different than the other ten spies? No. They didn't see anything different. They saw the same giants. They saw the same uh, tribes that were warlike. They saw the same fortified cities. What is the difference? The difference is Joshua and Caleb Believe the promise because God says, I've given them over to you. I have given them over to you. Now remember, because of their failure, we're going to see they're going to wander for 40 years, and then Joshua will take Jericho. Do you remember what Rahab said to the spies when they went into Jericho? The whole city is terrified. Here, Israel, now you think here. Israel is terrified of them, and despite the fact they have a promise from God. When in reality, it was the, those in Jericho and the others, the whole land was in terror, because Rahab says, we know of all that has happened. We know what God did to Pharaoh's army. We know the whole story. And lo, you are here. <laughs> you see, what happens is, when we choose to be dominated by fear and doubt in the promises of God, we have no idea of what, is, is what others are experiencing. We have no idea. All they had to do is go, woo! And they were just going like this. And yet, they chose to look at the circumstances, just like Peter was doing fine, was empowered by Jesus to walk on the water, until he looked at the circumstances, and then he began to sink. The ten spies looked at the circumstances, and fear dominated them. So it says, <clears throat> verse 32, they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. Why was it bad? 
Now, it was factually correct, wasn't it? Factually, it was correct. But it was said to be bad because it was not the faith. That's why it was bad. They gave a bad report. The land through which we have gone and spying it out, and land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people who saw it are men of great size. Then we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our sight, and we were so we were in their sight. What's the impact of a bad report? What's the impact of doubt and fear? It's infectious in a bad way. Here's how infectious it was. Look at Numbers 14.1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Now, Joshua and Caleb, they still try to convince Israel, look, God has promised us. It's a good land. And it says in verse 8, If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us to the land. Only give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Honey, only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And what was the congregation's response? They wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb. And as a result, they sin, the great sin, and God says, all right, it's over. For every day you're in the land, you're going to wander in the wilderness a year. You're in there 40 days, I'm going to make you wander for 40 years. And the whole generation, with the exception, <clears throat> those over 20, that whole generation is going to perish with the exception of Joshua Casey. You know, the thing about it is, when they heard the judgment upon them, they go, well, okay, we're going to do, all right, right, we'll we'll go and fight them. God said, no, wait a minute. I've already pronounced the judgment upon you. Don't go fight them. No, we're going to go fight them. (laughs) If you go fight them, it's not going to go well. So what do they do? They don't believe God again. And they get slaughtered. And they still go off. And wander for 40 years. The reality is this. Faith trusts in a promise. I'm just going to go back to what Jesus and his whole story of him walking on the water, coming to the disciples... Again, remember that phrase. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. We, as the church, we are the recipients of all of the promises that have gone before. All of them. Paul says in Galatians 3, By faith in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham. And all of those promises that were given to Abraham are ours. Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. King Jesus reigns over earth right now. 
defeating, putting his feet over all his enemies, subjecting them. He is winning the day. And we have all these promises. And Jesus has given us a commission, right? In Matthew 28. That great commission is always preface. preface. Turn, turn to Matthew 28 for a moment. We all know about the great commission in verses 19 and 20, but we've got to understand what is what undergirds the great commission. It's verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Go therefore. And how does the Great Commission end? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What did Jesus tell Peter? Take courage. I am with you. Don't be afraid. So in this glorious task given to the church, what is the promise that we are trusting in? That King Jesus has all the authority, right? If you have the whole, the, all the authority in the universe, who's going to stop you? Nobody. Nobody can stop you. You know the term there that Jesus uses is, uh, is a reference to one of the names of God about Jehovah who is the warrior of God. Jesus says, you are doing spiritual battle. And in this spiritual battle of winning souls unto me, I am with you to the end. You can't be stopped. Ultimately, you can't be stopped. Now, that's the promise. That's the promise. You know, in this <clears throat> this day, I, I'm sure you, you're distressed as you look out upon the cultural landscape and you see what's happening in America. You see what's happening in some elements of the, the visible church. Uh, <clears throat> we could easily get discouraged. We could easily doubt the promise of God. But we've got to remind ourselves, wait a minute. Take courage. It is I who is with you. Don't be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of what's happening out around us. Now, we may still be distressed because it is distressing when we see people rebel against God. But we're not distressed to the point of losing hope, or we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be distressed to the point that we... It, it uh, somehow paralyzes us. But let me tell you something. You know what doubt does? It will paralyze you. It paralyzes activity. Faith, on the other hand, empowers us and moves us forward. But fear will paralyze you. I mean, there are so many different applications from this. Why are all these stories, why are all the failures that we looked at in the Bible? Teach us a lesson. Don't be like them. That, though they had a promise, they didn't live by the promise. Learn from it. Learn from it. 
Learn from Peter walking the water, doing fine until he looked at the circumstances. Learn from it. Learn from the children of Israel who didn't go into the land despite the great promise. Learn from it. Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Has enough trouble of its own. But guess what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. All your needs will be supplied. You don't need to worry. Why? I am with you. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Let's pray.